0: Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast, I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 39 on May 3rd, 2019, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll talk to some of the instructors of classes at our upcoming Skillshare. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, our handle is at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. Today we're going to talk to three instructors, each of whom are teaching a class at the upcoming Skillshare on June 1st and 2nd here in Cooksville. This weekend we'll bring together a whole bunch of teachers and students to learn all kinds of hands-on skills helping us house clothe and feed ourselves in a future without fossil fuels registration is open you'll definitely want to sign up before the uh, classes fill up you can go to our website lowtechinstitute.org and right on the main page you'll see the link to the sustainability skillshare main page where you'll find descriptions of all the classes we have. You can also follow our blog or our social media accounts to find out more about different classes as we update and post about each of the classes as we can. And now on to our first interview with Tom Bartlett, the proprietor of Silva Spoons. He'll be teaching our spoon carving course here at the Skillshare. You can find his website as well as the website of all the other folks we're going to be talking to today on the show notes Tell me a little bit about what you do and uh, what you'll be teaching at the Skillshare. I I make things out
1: of wood uh, using hand tools. I do a lot of uh, utensils and vessels. Um, So in my own workshop, I uh, turn a lot on a foot-powered lace. um, And I also carve things like spoons and spatulas. Um, And so at the uh, sustainability Skillshare uh, weekend, I'll be showing people how to use uh, an axe, a knife, and a hook knife, so three simple tools, um, how to carve spoons using just those.
0: Is that something that needs like a lot of upper body strength, or is it pretty approachable for most people?
1: Yeah, it's it's really approachable. The, uh, the axe is actually a, a really efficient tool um, because it's a heavy lump of metal on the end of the stick. You basically just need to uh, lift it up, and gravity does a lot of the work for you, so it's surprisingly efficient. Hmm. Uh, the knife work can be a little tiring, but um, you just take your time. Like, there's there's no menu, like single move or cut that requires a lot of force. You can have the same effect from one big cut as you can from several smaller ones. So upper body strength isn't really an issue.
0: Oh, that's great. And so if somebody comes to the class on... Um, Saturday or Sunday, what what would they expect to uh, take away as an actual thing, and and other and skills otherwise?
1: Yeah, so um, on Saturday, uh, I'm going to teach people um, the the basic knife grips involved in uh, spoon carving and green woodworking in general. Um, and so to to focus our efforts on developing those grips, we'll be making a small piece, which is. Uh, basically just Swedish for uh, butter knife, okay. um, but it's a really fun little utensil that shows you how the grain direction uh, affects how we can carve. Hmm. Uh, on Sunday, we'll be uh, doing axe work, um, so people who want to learn how to uh, carve with an axe, uh, be, I'll be showing them how to do that, and people that book the full weekend, We'll take our knife skills that we learned on the Saturday and we'll apply it to a spoon blank that we'll axe out on Sunday.
0: Okay. And is that something people should uh, buy their own tools ahead of time or do you have sets available?
1: No, everything will be provided. We've got tools and materials. Um, I'll I'll talk a lot about how to source decent tools and and what a a good set of tools looks like. Um, But I've got everything for people. All they need to do is wear comfortable clothing,
0: Great. And so probably a good uh, a good weekend experience if you're thinking about getting into it but don't want to have to necessarily commit to buying the tools and sitting down and cutting your own yeah. thumb off alone.
1: I'm surprised by how many uh, people have been interested in spoon carving uh, recently. It seems to have become very popular. Um, I've worked with a lot of different people I've worked with um, some Iraq war vets who find it really calming to do and mm. people who do kind of high-end furniture who like to do a form of woodworking that's a lot quicker and they see more immediate results out of
0: mm.
1: Um, mm. so yeah it's a fun thing for, for a range of people to get involved with and try.
0: Okay so I've seen um, y- your spoons are uh, you can you. After a lot of practice, you can make them fairly rapidly. Um, is that something that is kind of like the base for finer um, spoon making? Like online, you see some of these really elaborately carved spoons uh, that take, you know, someone a week or a couple of weeks to make. Is this kind of the jumping off point for further uh, spoon carving?
1: Yeah, so, so this weekend's class will be a beginner's class um, focusing on all the, the, the basic techniques um, needed to, to carve spoons, but the the skills that you'll learn will be transferable to, to more and more complex shapes and designs. The designs that we'll be focusing on will be utilitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some cultures, um, like uh, the Welsh, who, as part of uh, uh, marriage rituals, essentially, they will carve very elaborate spoons to show how handy they are, um, nice. but those spoons nowadays aren't intended for use. So there are oh, some design elements that you need to include if, if you want a utensil to be functional, as opposed to one that's purely decorative. Oh, okay. Um, but the skills are the same.
0: So what got you started in this?
1: As a kid, I just liked making pointy sticks sitting by the fire when we used to go camping. <laughs> um, and then uh, I'd spend time outside and enjoyed making big bits of wood into smaller pieces of wood. Eventually, I wanted to, to turn that towards something that's useful and because you can use a spoon once you've uh, carved it that that really appealed to me Um, I've tried my hand at figure carving but you just kind of end up with a shelf full of figures that that sit there and they look nice but don't really do anything Uh and for me personally like spoon carving practical utensils really uh, was a a great appeal and it helps connect me to nature Um, spend a lot of time looking at trees and appreciating them as, as living objects and at the moment, I'm working with uh, Wisconsin Urban Wood to make sure all my wood comes from uh, urban trees that are already scheduled to be cut down, so uh, oh, that's it's, great. it's a nice thing to do.
0: Yeah, certainly, I'm sure if the trees had sentience, uh, they'd probably prefer to be a spoon rather than firewood.
1: Yeah, indeed, yeah, it's all about getting like the highest possible use after a tree when it's when it needs to be uh, cut down.
0: So obviously people can sign up for your class uh, on the Low Tech Institute website, lowtechinstitute.org, through the Sustainability Skillshare. Uh, But if they wanted to find you uh, directly, how would they do that?
1: Yeah, so uh, I have a website. It's silverspoon.com. That's Um, S-Y-L-V-A-S-P-O-O-N.com. And a lot of my work's on there. I do a lot on Instagram as well, where I'm just at silver underscore spoon um I, I i'm usually poking fun of myself or making fun of my dog um but
0: there's
1: a lot of woodworking on there as
0: well <laughs> oh great wonderful yeah instagram is a great way to share a lot of visual information and not have to deal with all the pol- political stuff that you find on other social media <laughs> <laughs> yeah a little bit of escapism and, and it's a, a funny thing to be involved with with
1: um Using tools and technology that, that have been around for centuries and, and I'm posting it on a platform that's only been around for a few years. So it's, uh, it's interesting to bring those two things together.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Huh. have not thought of it that way. Although some people mentioned to us, like, why do you have a low-tech podcast? And it's like, well, pod- <laughs> I mean... I'm not going to go knock on everyone's door and tell, you know, do the, each uh, episode for them, so it's a little easier way to get uh, audio material to a lot of people all over the world. So, easy, the simplest means. So
1: Yeah, and and, and there's a lot of people who get precious about hand tools, but um, really I, I, I just enjoy using them. I put up a video recently of me turning a cup on my foot-powered lace, mm-hmm. and to shape the handle, to get the hole on the inside of the handle, I used an electric drill and a few people were questioning that, but um, it was the quickest and easiest way for me to do it, and so um, I'd like to get some solar panels on my shed so that I can you <laughs> be fully off grid with an electric drill, but it's also, like if, if people want to use power tools in woodworking, I'm, I'm just interested in getting them involved in woodworking.
0: My town uh, in the 1850s uh, had a shutter and door factory, and it was powered by a horse that walked in a circle turning a, a large <laughs> wheel that turned a crank that turned a shaft that turned all the, the machines inside so I, the woodwork. And I yeah. thought, oh, that'd be really cool, except I don't have a horse. So it'd be really neat to do um, a windmill-powered uh, tool shop with a central you know, shaft that's turned by wind power, and you'd have to... You could only work on some days but when you you know, and you'd have to regulate that. But uh if you had a nice flywheel you could probably keep it fairly uh fairly regular and useful.
1: Yeah, I mean I I, I live right in the uh center of uh well in, in Madison in a very urban area and so uh we have uh, we have four chickens and a spaniel, so I don't think I could get much torque out of uh out <laughs> of them even if I could
0: harness them all up. Yeah, maybe the spaniel but not the chickens. Okay, well, take care of yourself. Don't cut your thumbs off.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'll try not to. I quite like (laughs) them.
0: You're attached, huh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right, thanks, Tom. Take care. All right, thank you. Our second interview is with Holland from Dancing Lamb in Evansville, Wisconsin. She'll be teaching our Wonders of Wool class, where people will learn how to spin wool with a drop spindle. So I'm talking with Holland, who is instructing the uh, wool spinning course. So Holland, what can people expect from this workshop? They're going to be learning how to spin wool, and wool
2: has been used for thousands of years for clothing and cordage and making and a whole bunch of things. And so we're going to take the first step in learning how to spin wool, and the wool can be used for knitting or crochet, and people can then take another step forward if they want to later um, at another time and learn how to spin on a wheel
0: but Mm. we're going
2: to be using a drop spindle which is the earliest method of spinning.
0: What what does a drop spindle look like? Would people know it from anywhere?
2: Um, They might. It's basically a weight on a stick Um, you can make a drop spindle out of a potato on a dowel but (laughs) they don't spin very well (laughs) but it's basically weighted and so the ones that we're going to use are disc shaped Uh and then there's a, a stick piece of wood, it's a dowel that runs out of that and that's what you spin with. Mm. And um Helen of Troy, did you know that? Helen of Troy had a golden spindle. Oh, wow. So there's lots and lots of history around spinning and spindles and like spider grandmother was a spinner and the fates were spinners. Oh, wow. So there's there's an inter- interesting intersection between religion and spinning. So it goes back about ten thousand
0: years. And so uh, in the course, you guys will be spinning uh, sheep's wool, I assume. I, what, what are you guys going to be spinning? Well, we're going to be spinning sheep's wool because
3: that's the easiest fiber to spin.
0: Oh, okay. Um, other things
2: that have been spun throughout history are flax, um, cotton in areas like Egypt. Flax was more in Europe. Um, alpaca is a big favorite to spin nowadays. Um, nettle fibers can be spun. Oh, wow and uh, hemp fibers are really great for spinning, Hmm. but we're going to focus on wool because that's the easiest to learn how to spin. It's a lot more forgiving than some of the other fibers, especially the plant fibers that take an awful lot of twist and a lot of skill to learn. So
0: wool is pretty forgiving. So does anyone need any kind of background knowledge or anything like that, or can they come completely new to this? Oh,
2: they can come if they're totally new to it. The interest in fiber... Obviously, you know, you can, you can go anywhere from making really fine formal textiles to hats and mittens, and whatever they spin will be usable. Even if it's lumpy and bumpy, we call that visual interest. Um, <laughs> so they will be able to, you know, eventually just do something simple like knitting a hat or crocheting a hat or a pair of mittens. They can learn how to do that. Um, from the wool that they spun. So, this is an introduction to that. But no experience is needed at all.
0: Would it be a good, uh, good idea to bring a chair or something to sit on since it is a day long? Uh, sort of course? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, We will be standing a lot of the time, but uh, especially for people who may have um, difficulty standing or if they have a disability or something, they will want to have a chair, if possible, a chair without arms. Oh, interesting. Because it will make the spinning a little easier for them. Okay. But if they don't, then they can just scoot up on their lawn chairs. Um, If they want to bring a pillow, because uh, they'll need to move forward on a, on a metal chair or something like that.
3: Okay.
0: That would be a good idea, too. Okay, great. Um, let's see. So um, after this course, wh- what would people do next? What would be the next step in uh, their spinning education?
2: Well, practice makes perfect, and it's my opinion that if you are a good drop spindle spinner, because you can take that anywhere. Mm. Um, that's the beauty of it. I've stopped an entire airport bar full of people by just spinning nearby and they were so curious they stopped drinking um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but, but it's very portable you don't have to mm. pay, you know it's hard to take
0: a spinning wheel sure. on an airplane but you can take a drop spindle and some wool well, a um, on
2: a plane anywhere and you can you know it's very very portable so um, people used to they'd have their spindles with them while they might be driving the sheep to market mm. and so they'd be spinning while they were doing that so I think that the best spinners that I know usually start out with a drop spindle, and when they get pretty good at a drop spindle, then, if they want, they can go into spinning with a spinning wheel. Hmm. But but there are many spinners I know who spin almost exclusively with a drop spindle.
0: Oh, wow. And they're, they're,
2: they do fabulous spinning.
0: So let's say somebody's excited about coming, but they want to find out more ahead of time, or maybe the the date won't work for their schedule, where would they find you and uh, what sorts of information would you want them to know?
2: Well, I'm in Evansville and they are welcome to call me at Mm 608-882-0267 or they can email me at lamb at gmail.com. And I would be happy to set up uh, you know a class just for them, and we can work around their schedule and and get them going. And I have for the class I'll be teaching for the skillshare, I already have the
3: spindles, and so that'll be part oh, of great. Uh, a part of the fees is the material fees.
2: I've got the spindles, and I have some really nice wool. Roving, in other words, it's all it's that's ready to be spun that I've hand selected so that it will be easy for beginning spinners to spin. You oh, know, great. you can't just take it off a sheep and start.
0: Sure, it's, of course, yeah. You've got
2: to have decent fiber to work with. I oh, wonder. Um, lots of people have been turned off by spinning because they've had bad wool. Oh. So I've, I've chosen wool that is nice to spin. And these spindles are very nicely turned, and they're very
3: stable and reliable. So
0: oh, they're
2: going to be starting out with some you know, some good basic equipment.
0: We'll put a link to Dancing Lamb, your business, in the show notes, too, so people can just click through there uh, rather right. than have to type everything down. And so at the end of the class, what uh, should people be expecting to take home with them? You mentioned already a spindle. They'll have um, some
2: yarn. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to spin what's called singles, mm-hmm. which is what you get when you spin and then what you what you do with a singles yarn is you ply it so when you're going to a store and you see that kind of spiraling effect mm-hmm. in with yarn that's called a plied yarn and plying uh is a matter of getting two singles yarns and turning them in the the direction that you spun them and that sounds complicated but it's not very hard so they're going to be doing singles and then the second half of the day we're going to work on plying so they will with practice they will know all the steps to spinning um to doing some basic spinning i I won't teach carding and stuff that's a whole different process but they can go out and get commercial roving and If they practice even 15 minutes a day or so, Mm -hmm.
0: they'll become a spinner. Do they get to take the spindle home, or is that available for purchase?
2: What they get to do is they'll
0: have a spindle to take home, and they'll have this roving, which is the
2: raw fiber, to take home. And, of course, their yarn that they make, Uh they take home with
0: them. That's great. Oh, that'll be exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, wonderful! Um, well, thanks so much for uh, chatting with me today, and hopefully, uh, we'll get a whole bunch of folks in your class, and it'll be an exciting day, and the weather will be nice. Let's uh, hope. Oh, <laughs> I'm be looking outside. forward to it. I mean, there are so many
2: amazing people,
0: and I just
2: fiber has been my passion, and I I spin and I knit and I weave and. It's, you know, it's, it's a pretty basic thing, clothing yourself. And mm. this is the beginning of how to do that. So it's really a wonderful self-sufficiency skill. Oh, yeah. I figure, if, you know, if the grid goes down, I'm going to have a job because people got to have
0: clothes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and now on to our final interview with Hawthorne McCracken, who will be teaching our backyard permaculture and creating sacred space classes. Uh, Hawthorne, you are going to be teaching uh, Backyard Permaculture, which is kind of an introduction to permaculture, and creating sacred spaces. So what uh, what will those courses entail? Both of the courses are sort of about
3: making do with what you already have and uh, looking at the resources that are already at, on your land or in your life. So in Backyard Permaculture, I'm really going to focus on applying permaculture systems or permaculture theories to what's already present in the yard. Um, Because a lot of folks, especially in Wisconsin will have a wet and shady yard and not really know that there are a lot of native plants and a lot of edible plants that they can use in that space instead of just yeah. hostas And creating sacred space, we'll definitely talk about different kinds of sacred space and what that means to us, um, as well as how to work that sacred space into our daily routine so it doesn't become you
0: know another shrine that gets neglected or another habit that we sort of forget about is that kind of a creating a space to sit be contemplative or what what sort of spaces are you uh, talking about so
3: it could be any sort of thing yeah it can be a space for meditation a space for mindfulness and this is where some of the garden design comes into play Um, Uh, i can definitely advise folks on you know creating outside spaces for meditation, or it can be more of a shrine to a particular purpose. In my practice, I do a little bit of both, you know, a focused sacred space for getting particular things done, or, you know, changing how the house feels, a little bit of interior design, or, you know, just getting a bit of quiet and calm in an otherwise hectic space, you know, making a nice meditation garden in your backyard, perhaps, or just finding a spot in in the living room or kitchen to remind you to slow down in the morning,
0: perhaps. Yeah, I think we could all use that. And uh, so I saw there was a a materials fee. So what what will people be actually doing during the classes?
3: So in Backyard Permaculture, we will be um, working on some pretty quick and basic sketches, and Mm -hmm. folks will go home with a sort of a garden plan and I definitely invite those who are interested in the class to bring photographs or to bring you know like a google maps or satellite printout of what their yard looks like that way we can get them oriented and see what sort of sunlight they have or if they're close to anybody's water and other stuff like that then we will draw you know a a very quick base map of the property and start Mm -hmm. discussing how to uh integrate the concept of permaculture zones into their
0: design as well. So what's your background in this? How, how, how did you get into this? Oh, yeah. So I actually started out going to
3: college at UW-Whitewater and uh, studying fine art. I ended up changing to uh, going over to Milwaukee Area Technical College. Mm-hmm. In 2016, and I took classes there and got certificates in greenhouse growing, as well as the certificate in Wisconsin native plants. Studied permaculture at Gateway Technical with uh, Kate Field, mm. and took a permaculture design course with her there. So I sort of I've always been interested in herbalism and learning about the plants around me, and mm-hmm. uh, it's. I was really excited to find out that I could, you know, go to tech school and go to college
0: and get certificates and that sort of thing and, you know, yeah. formalize that education. And, and so what do you do uh, on the day-to-day? I saw you have a website. Oh, yeah. So um, right now I have a project I call the Hedgerow,
3: and that I focus on garden design as well as uh, integrating a little bit of that sacred space or spiritual care into folks' lives when they're interested mm. Um, my garden designs, I tend to focus on, again, applying permaculture and growing native plants from Wisconsin in smaller spaces.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I work a lot with folks who live in town or may have a small or awkward yard. work on doing garden designs and helping them to install native plants there.
0: And just if people are looking for you, what's what's that website? I'll link to it in the show notes, too.
3: Oh, yeah. It's com.
0: Well, thanks for taking a minute to chat with me about the class. I hope... Uh, full class of people with a lot of different ideas and a lot of different spaces to talk about. That sounds like a a lot of fun. All right.
3: Well, thank you so much for talking with
0: me. Yeah, thanks, Hawthorne. Thanks to all those instructors who had a little bit of time to chat with me this week. You can find out more about their classes, as well as many others, at the Sustainability Skillshare website, which is linked in the show notes and on our main homepage, lowtechinstitute.org. And Now let's turn to this weekend low-tech news. There are a couple of stories that I wanted to highlight uh, from our weekly news roundup. One of them comes from Grist and it is entitled, Lawns are the number one irrigated crop in America. They need to die. Obviously uh, there's a bit of editorial opinion there but it is not an unfounded one. Um, Not only are lawns the number one irrigated crop so, to speak, in America, they're the number one grown plant. You drive through Iowa or other places and you see so much corn, you can't imagine that there's anything more prolific than corn in the United States. But in fact, lawns, um, the acreage of lawns outnumbers the acreage of any other crop. And it's a little crazy to be growing something that is so uh, just an aesthetic thing rather than a productive thing. Um, And I'm not against art for art's sake uh, or having things look nice. I'm not against that per se. But when we do that at the expense of the environment, we need to reevaluate that. So have a read of that Grist article. It'll be linked in the show notes. And then there's also a long series I want to point out from the Permaculture Research Institute called uh, House Cows, Golden Eggs, and the True Cost of Cheap Supermarket Food. This is a five-part long read on uh, an indictment of why cheap supermarket food is uh, terrible for us and the environment. So it's absolutely worth a a read. It talks about uh, everything from animal health to uh, our own health. Again, that'll be linked in the show notes, so have have a read of that. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. It is spring, that means it's planting season, so we are out in force. Uh, Our neighbors have hung up their hose, so to speak. Uh, They were a uh, market garden and now they are just gardening for themselves, so they have a lot of extra room. And they offered me about a tenth of an acre uh, to grow on. And so I've decided to grow our chicken feed this year as well as some flax, which I'll talk about in a minute. I'm growing corn, amaranth, sunflower seeds, oats, peas to make into a a chicken feed uh, with a little bit of supplemented nutrition and calcium. That'll cut down on our feed costs considerably this year assuming it all grows. So, so far I have established some beds and put up a seven foot high deer fence because there's a lot of deer in the area and they will eat all of these foods right away. I've also been establishing the institute garden beds, which means I've been collecting a lot of cardboard, laying it down as a mulch and then putting compost and mulch on top of that into which I'll plant. Sometimes I cut a hole in the cardboard and plant through the cardboard into the good rich soil we have here. And sometimes I just plant right in the existing compost on top in a lasagna garden for less weeding later in the season. Uh, I'll be posting all of this information throughout the year on our blog as I continue our one hour a day gardening accounting. We have a big garden and grow a lot of our food and sometimes people say, well, this must take so much time and I want a way to quantify exactly how much time it does take, so I do track my hours and those are available on our website, on the blog, in our hour a day gardening updates that come every week or two. It's also been a busy time because I've been trying to finish our Wallapini greenhouse built uh, of earth bags. It's basically an in-ground greenhouse and we've had a workshop or two on it with people coming over to give me a hand with the earth bag construction. But I'm going to do a whole episode on this coming up soon and I hope to have that wrapped up by the end of next week. And I'm also starting a new project which I will document on the blog as well as on the podcast. I want to make a shirt. I want to demonstrate how much work goes into making a garment to do that, uh, I took advantage of that extra space I have growing at my neighbor's plot uh, to grow flax. And then I will process that flax, turn it into thread, weave it, and then sew it into a shirt. Uh, And just I'm going to document all the hours it takes and the different steps and processes I have to go through to make this shirt just to kind of demonstrate the difficulty it has been in the past to make garments and how we kind of take clothing today for granted. So stay tuned for that and updates as the project continues. Well, that's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Laughing Turkeys off the album of the same name by Captive Portal. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons attribution, and share-alike license, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute membership and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly at scott at Thanks and take care.
1: Yeah, you're not going to include the dog catch a bit.
0: No, 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 no. Although sometimes <laughs> I I do include outtakes. Uh, we had an interview with my wife. <laughs> so you know how like when you have a conversation with your wife or your significant other. And you're like, but I said that. And your significant other's like, no, you actually didn't say that. Well, if you have that conversation on a podcast, then you can go back and be like, yes, yeah, I actually did say that. Not helpful. It's not a helpful thing to have. But everybody's thought that when they've had conversations and disagreements with their spouse. Like, I wish I had a record of it because then I could say I did say that.